Murder, divorce, drugs. Our courts are full of stories, scary, sad, and hilarious. Most are tales stranger than fiction. These are true law stories. Brought to you by VideoCaseStory.com, the ultimate resource for customer and client video stories. All right, on this true law stories, we're going to talk about dangerous products and airbags severing a woman's jugular, how insurance companies go after essentially the little old lady who was slightly injured and just needs some help and actually was very severely injured and needs some help. Uh, we're going to talk about the horrible strategies of insurance companies, how they deny you insurance claims. We've got Mitch Chubb from Chubb Law. Mitch, say hi. How we doing, everybody? And we're going to talk about Mitch's trial uh, battling for a six-year-old woman to get her medical bills covered, the low point of the trial, the high point of the trial, the emotional roller coasters of it, uh, Mitch's impermissible crying, uh, and the longest five hours of his life, as well as the Takata airbag cases and uh, the horrible truth behind products liability. All this on true law stories, but before we get started, a process, of course, is brought to you by videocasestory.com. One of the best ways to grow your law practice, your business, is through your client customer stories. At videocasestory.com, we can help you to strategize and collect, craft, and deliver them. Go to videocasestory.com to learn more. All right, let's get started. Well, I'm excited. Mitch is an awesome attorney. You know, we, we've worked together. I've heard a lot of the stories. He just helps a ton of people. And, and all the other attorneys have great things to say. So I want to have him come on, talk about some of the stories because he's worked in what's called mass tort, you know, with big product liability cases, as well as helping the little guy against the insurance company, which I think is a big theme because so many people get injured and they think the insurance company is going to be their friend and it's just not the case. So Mitch, tell us a little bit about your firm and your background and then we'll get into some of these stories. Yeah, so we're in the Orlando area and, and more specifically uh, Lake Mary, which is a little bit north of, of downtown Orlando. And we only do personal injury. That's all we do. That's what I've done for all of my career, and it's something I'm passionate about, and, and I really enjoy doing. And um, you know, as as I think you mentioned, uh, the part I like about it is is we're helping people, right? And so um, I know that us personal injury lawyers do not have the best reputation, and and certainly there are examples uh, out there that warrant that reputation. I think that we're doing good work over here and, and literally just helping people that need it. Do you feel that reputation is because of bad personal injury lawyers or because of marketing from insurance companies? Great question. Not something that uh, I generally will offer, but I, I totally believe it's primarily due to marketing by insurance companies. And, you know, actually my mom recently had this little issue with her car that needed to be fixed is a little dent. And, and she's like, well, I, I really don't want to use insurance because I'm worried about my insurance rates going up. And my wife and I were talking about that. And it's like, how did we get to this point where the thing that we're paying for every month and insurance, like somehow there's like this idea that we shouldn't use what we paid for when that's why we have it in the first place. It's crazy. It's we spend a lot of money on insurance, and yep. then we don't want to use it. I mean, I like I look around. You know, some people are spending two, three thousand dollars a month, especially if a kid with a car. 
you're spending a ton of money on insurance and we're afraid to use it. I mean, and you see that all the time. You People are afraid to even talk, like sue their insurance company, aren't they? They are. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that just goes back to what we're talking about. It's like somehow um, they've created this, you know, through genius marketing is what I would call it. Right. Or evil marketing is probably more appropriate, but they've created this like stigma or feeling where we don't, we have insurance, but we don't want to use insurance. Right. We're afraid of, of what happens, which doesn't make sense. If you think about it, it makes zero sense. And I hear this from people all the time. It's like, I'm not the type of person that sues. I know so many people that have been in car accidents and I'm like, did you call an attorney? They're like, no. I, you know, my neck just hurts a little bit. I'm like, like I'm just dumbfounded by it. I am dumb. They're like, oh, I talked to the insurance company. And I'm like, do you think that they're really going to do what's best for you? It, it, their job is to keep the money, right? Not, not to help you. <laughs> and how often do you see where the insurance company, it, like, well, A, where people think that they're not suing an insurance company, they're suing the person. And B, that the insurance company is doing what's best for the person that's been injured. I mean, most people, like you're saying, they have this belief that they're going after the other person uh, personally, right? And and that's not the case. In, in all of our cases, and I can speak for our firm, we're, we're only going after insurance money. Um, and I actually just had a conversation with a lady today who... Um, she was driving and, and basically had a medical emergency and she hit somebody and, and hurt them. And, you know, she, she's on the other side of what we normally do, but I was just trying to give her some advice. And, um, she felt like the, the lady who she hurt was coming after her, even though there was insurance involved. And, and I explained to her, I was like, no, your insurance company should be taking steps to protect you. Um, and the other side is, is really only coming after the insurance money, but even on the other side, she didn't understand that. Right. And so it's super common. And then the, yeah, what was the second question? How often does the insurance company do what's absolutely best for the person that's injured? Yeah, almost never. Right. Um, and I tell people all the time, I tell clients usually in our first conversation, I say, Look, if insurance companies did did what is right and treated people fairly, then there would be no need for what I do, right? But here I am and we've got plenty of work, right? I'm super busy and that's because they don't. Yeah, I, I try to explain this to people because I've been working with personal injury attorneys for so long, you know, 15 years. And I still, you know, I'm, I think I'm decent at marketing and still hard to explain to people that personal injury attorneys are just the flip side of insurance, right? When you're, when you need your insurance, that's when you need the attorney because the insurance company now is no longer your friend. They're your, <laughs> they're trying to keep all the money you sent to them. And so, you know, you've got cases where you go to trial and the insurance company is pretty brutal to the plaintiff, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Um, lots of those cases and, and, you know, I, I hear those frustrations from my clients all the time. It's like, you know, any case that we have, our client did nothing wrong and they were hurt due to something that they had nothing to do with, right? Um, they did nothing wrong in. And then it's like, they think they're 
a reasonable person and, um, you know, the, the things that they're asking for from insurance are reasonable, but then the insurance company just finds every reason, you know, not, not to pay them or, or to be reasonable with things. We see it all the time. And you, you've had a recent case that went to trial like that, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, it was a case where, uh, just a rear end car accident and, um, again, rear end car accident, my, my client sitting at a stoplight. Um, next thing she knows, boom, somebody's into the back of her car. Um, she ends up herniating a disc in her neck that, um, needs some, you know, pretty serious procedures. And, um, she was somebody who had never made an insurance claim before and had no idea what to expect. And she's like, look, I, I just, you know, want my medical bills covered and, and a little bit of something for what I've had to go through. And, um, we gave, and this is over the course of two years, right? We gave the insurance company every chance to be reasonable and, and settle the case and ultimately they didn't and, and we ended up going to trial on that case. So when you have a trial like that, what is that trial like? How does that affect, how does the insurance company go after the plaintiff during the trial? Yeah. So they are looking for any reason to blame other things, right. Or other events. Right. And so, um, like in, in this case, uh, they, my client had been a hairdresser for like 30 years for her entire life and then had worked hard to make a, a living doing that. And so they hired a, a doctor who they paid a, a bunch of money who basically got up on the stand and he, and he said, yeah, um, you know, her, her neck injuries are, are from her being a hairdresser for 30 years. Right. So like. That's something we would see all the time. How does that make an individual feel? Well, I mean, because I'm sure she's never been to court before and all of a sudden now these people are blaming her for her career. Yeah. You know, I think that's one of the hardest parts for clients and, and honestly for me as, as well is in almost all of these cases, their strategy um, is calling the plaintiff a, li a liar without like coming out and saying you're a liar and made all this up, but that's clearly what their strategy is. And so I think it's, it's just really, really frustrating. Um, it makes clients angry because they're being called a, a liar, even though they've done nothing wrong and, and they would consider themselves honest people. You know, like we said before, a lot of people are say, I'm not the type of person to sue. Was this another one of those cases where they just didn't want to sue that they just wanted like, they didn't think that they were the type of person to sue and didn't think that this was necessary. Yeah. She, she was totally that type of person. Um, you know, I think she even said something along those lines to me at, at the beginning, right. She had never been involved in any lawsuit before this. And she was like 62 at the time of the accident. Right. Um, and she had no interest in going down this route, but unfortunately she just, she had no other choice.
This is an insurance company. It, two years. That's a long time to be in limbo trying to figure out if you're going to get your medical bills paid for that for insurance that you've paid for for your entire life. What was it like to prepare for this type of trial? So any trial, at least the way we do things, it's it's an all-in type thing, right? And so in the weeks, sometimes months leading up to trial, um, not that you're completely ignoring your other cases, but there's definitely the trial cases at the top of your mind. And, you know, you're waking up at, at 2 or 3 a.m. with um, different ideas on how to do things better. And, and the reason um, for that is, is any trial like that, it, and we usually tell the jury this, is there's an all-time decision made at that trial. And so... 99% chance, like whatever decision is made at that trial is going to stand forever and we don't get to go back and do it again. And, and so, you know, our clients only have one shot at this stuff and, and we got to give it um, everything we can for them. And when you're thinking about like damages and, and what you're going to ask for for during a trial, a lot of people see these like big numbers. They see like 150000 dollars $300,000 and they're like, well... Why does a person need money like that? Why does a person need money, like the money that you're asking for, for that? So there are a few different components of, of damages, right? In, in any case, um, one of those we've kind of touched on, it's medical bills, right? And so it's not only medical bills in the past, but it, it could be medical bills in the future as well. I think most people understand that medical bills are expensive, Right. Um, and, and so if you're looking at, you know, years or decades in the future, that adds up really quickly. And then, um, you know, the, the part of damages that I think a lot of people take issue with is we call them non-economic damages. But the most common is is uh, pain and suffering, which most most people know that term. Um, and uh, again, the way that we look at it and explain it to the jury is, is uh, the jury is evaluating a, a really significant period of time, right? And so they're evaluating the case all the way into the future. And so those numbers, that math adds up really, really quick. And, and you get those big numbers that everybody sees on the billboards. And that's what, like I said, it's, it's years. Thank you. Like, I, like thinking about the pain and having to go to a doctor. And I was just visiting one of my cousins and she has to go to the doctor every day. I think we get, we feel inconvenienced if we have to stand in line at the bank once a week, right? <laughs> so having to go to do doctor every day for your life. So you're, you get into trial and now you're painting this picture. Tell me a little bit about this trial specifically. How did it go? You know, were there points where you thought you won or you thought you lost? You know, I, th I think most... Most trials, um, you're in trial because both sides have some things to talk about, right? Um, and so I think most trials, it's an emotional roller coaster, right? And so um, we, the, the plaintiff, we present our case first and, and generally, um, and I remember specifically in this case, like we... We finish our case, right? Presenting our evidence in the case and and you feel great, right? Like you feel like there's no way 
Um, you know, the jury could do anything but decide with us. And then the other side gets to go. Right. And, and then you're, you have lots of worries and, and stress through their case. Um, and, you know, this trial specifically, it, it was like that. I, I remember um, our case was a few days and, and I think we finished on, um, we started beginning of the week on a Monday and finished on Wednesday and, and I felt great. And, and then, you know, the other side presented their case and, and, um, and I was really feeling it and worried and, and, um, you know, it was an emotional roller coaster. What was, a, well, you know, when you're getting on that emotional roller coaster, what was the point where you started feeling like, oh, I'm not sure. Yeah. So in, in most, um, most personal injury cases, uh, the insurance company will hire, we call them a, a CME doctor, but, but basically under the law, they have the ability to hire a doctor and, and most of these doctors they work with all the time. And in this case, it had been a guy that they had, they had hired like, you know, over 300 times in the last four years and paid like over a million dollars. Right. And he evaluates your client and then he testifies um, at, at trial. Right. And, and he's, these people are medical doctors, um, but they, as you can imagine, they generally uh, are not good for our case as the plaintiff. And so I, I remember when he was testifying in, in this case, uh, you're always like evaluating the jury and, and, you know, looking at their facial expressions, are they engaged? And, um, do you think that, that, uh, that they're into what the witness is saying? And, and I felt like he really had them during this trial. And I remember being really, really worried. The insurance company's paid this guy a million dollars over the past whatever time. Right. It could be a year. It could be five years. Can you bring that up in court that like, Hey, they, he's done this 300 times for these people. You might have some bias. Yeah, you actually, you actually can. And of course we did in, in this trial. Um, and, and so you just have to remember though. So for their witness, they get to ask them the questions first and usually they don't bring that up. Right. And so, the jury hears everything that this doctor has to say, and usually they're they're really persuasive, right? Because their career. And then, um, you know, for me, like with this guy specifically, when I cross-examined him, that was the first thing I brought up, right? Well, you've worked with them, you know, 300 times over the past X amount of years, and, and they paid you... Uh, over a million bucks for those 300 times. Isn't that true? Right. Um, so I like that right off the bat. It's just like, how can you even give credit to that? It's like, I can understand if someone it's like, oh, I picked out this expert, but there's plenty of doctors out there. I'm sure you can find as experts that you haven't paid a million dollars to. Yeah. But th that's the game. So, okay. You're going through this. Tell me about once the final arguments, the deliberation, what was that like in that case? And then finally hearing the outcome. So closing arguments, final arguments in this one, I really cared about this client and we just had a really special relationship. Um, and I, I think I mentioned earlier, she was, she was uh, 62 and, and she's like right at the age of my mom actually. And so like, I kind of always like perceived this case as like, if she were my mom, 
Um, and it just made it hit home and, and, um, you know, motivate me that much more. And so actually in closings, um, and, and, you know, the lawyers that listen to this will know this is, uh, very, very much in the gray, but I actually compared her, um, to my mom and I was talking about, you know, what the doctors were saying for her future and what she was going to have to deal with. And, uh, and, and I choked up and, and I don't think I cried. Um, what I, what I do know is, is the defense appealed, um, the verdict in this case, because they said, and I quote, I impermissibly cried during closing arguments. So it, you know, all that say closing, it was emotional. Um, and, and I like to leave it all in the field. Right. Um, I'm a sports guy and I think that applies to the courtroom. And so I felt like we did that. And and, um, you know, then they make their arguments and they always have stuff to talk about. Right. And uh, and and so then it's in the jury's hands. And so the jury went to deliberate, deliberate. And how long did that take and what was it like while you're waiting? Yeah. So I think that in that case, they were out. um four or five hours or so. Um, and it's, you know, it's the longest four or five hours of, of your life. Right. Um, and you're with your client during that time and they're like asking you, well, why are they taking so long? And what does that mean? And, and, um, you know, the reality is like, we know from experience generally, if they take a long time, that can mean this or, um, you know, if it's really short, that can mean that, but we're just, we're making educated guesses and, and telling our client that, and, and it, it's just very, it's really stressful. It's really stressful. What was it like when they read the verdict? It was, it was awesome. So it was a, it was a good verdict for us. And, uh, I remember, um, you know, you get, the, the bailiff basically tells you, Hey, we have a verdict and everybody goes back in the courtroom and, and, uh, then the jury comes in and, um, you know, they hand their verdict form over and the judge gets it and, and then they read it. And, and I remember, um, you know, getting the verdict and, and obviously my first, uh, the first thing I do is look at my client and, and did that and we embraced and, um, we actually have a picture of, uh, from this trial of us embracing and it's a really special moment and, and something I'll cherish forever. So that's amazing. It's not like she's going to go buy Ferraris, right? But this money, nope. <laughs> nope. it's, it, it's, it's just going to take care of her. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that's really true. Right. Um, so it's, she, she will have medical bills in the future related to this accident. Um, the money will go towards those. And, and then also the reality is she's dealing with, with daily pain from this accident. And, um, you know, some of the money's for that as, as well. So, and so, you know, this is a small, you know, not a small, but it's an important case for an individual. You have a lot of experience in big product liability cases. Tell us a little bit about your background and then the, the story with Takata airbags. I kind of came up as a young lawyer doing uh, products liability cases, and um, I really enjoy those cases. They're really 
interesting to me and I, I feel like we're making a difference in those cases as well. And so one of the things that you and I have, have talked about um, is, is we worked on the Takata airbag cases back when um, things were just coming out of, about how bad and how dangerous those airbags were. Um, and that actually ended up resulting in, in the biggest uh, recall in, in U.S. history um, due to the Takata airbags. So um, kind of where do you want me to go with, with that? With that type of case, they did a recall. How do you show liability in, a, in the Takata airbag case? How do you get money for that if they recall the item? Does, does Do they have to prove that there's negligence or does just can be a faulty item. So once once a, a product or something has been recalled, it makes our job as, as lawyers easier. Um, that's that's for sure. Um, but you know, like in, in these cases, we were actually we had some of these cases before the recall had even been issued. And um, like for example, one of the first publicly known about uh, deaths from Takata airbags occurred right here in Orlando. And um, we worked on that case. And at the time, um, you know, there had not been recalls of these vehicles. And um, we dug in and, and um, did a lot of work. And, and um, ultimately, we feel like we played, uh, you know, a part in and the vehicles being recalled in the first place and saved, you know, lots of people from injury and, and even saved lives because of that. Can you tell, tell me the details of how you realized that it was, it was a faulty product and not just an accident and this should have been recalled and did Takata know about it? In these cases, the, the most common situation that you would see would be uh, somebody's driving the vehicle equipped with this Takata airbag, um, they hit something in front of them, another car, pole, whatever it be, the airbag deploys. And um, these people were ending up with like pieces of shrapnel metal. So it would be like in their face um, or, or in the case I referred to where unfortunately the lady passed away, it, it actually was large enough to... Um, sever her jugular and so you know basically these are happening there are officers who are investigating the accident like they always do and and they're looking at these people and the injuries and they're thinking that's not supposed to happen right and so that's the initial sort of level there and and then you know through a lot of hard work and investigation you kind of figure out what the culprit is so i mean you're looking at that Tell me a little bit about that investigation because it's like, is this a one-off case where, you know, maybe it wasn't assembled properly or was this, a, you know, a systemic product issue? How did that investigation go? So um, with respect to the Takata airbags, one of the, the issues, well, the primary issue in those cases was in every airbag, there's, it's called a propellant, which is basically a low-level explosive and that's what inflates the airbag quick enough to provide, you know, a cushion for us or, or protection for us in a crash. And so in those, in these cases, that propellant, 
we know this now, right? We didn't know it at the time, but that propellant was um, degrading over time. And so once it was, you know, a certain age, and so once it was a certain age, these things started exploding like real explosives and sending shrapnel through the bags. And so, you know, kind of when these first started occurring there, all of a sudden they were popping up all over the country. These weren't, these were just settled correctly, not just settled, but you settled these cases, correct? Yeah. The, the ones that um, we worked on, we did end up settling. When these types of cases come around, at what point do you, you know, do you start going, Hey, maybe we should move this and try and find other people and bring it all together into to like a mass tort class action suit. How does that progression go? Specifically with products liability, it, as far as the plaintiff's lawyers who do those kind of cases, it's a relatively small number. Um, and there are ways that, uh, we all communicate, um, across the country and we kind of compare notes and say, you know, Hey, you having these kind of cases, me too. And, and once you see them start popping up all around the country, that's sort of like the initial formation of, of what you're referring to. And how often, like in the Takata case, you know, I, and I don't know this, but was, you know, cause we see this, like there was intentional knowledge of this thing being dangerous. How often do you see that in product liability cases where like, hey, they know it and they're just like, whatever, let's just put it out and we'll, we'll fight it when it comes. Way more than I, I wish I did, right? I guess that's that's the true answer to that. And it you see some scary stuff, right? And, and you know, I think everybody deep down um, is a little bit afraid of, of I guess, corporate, corporate greed, right, is what leads to these things. But... Um, you know, I, I think that stuff is happening a lot more than, than people would like to admit. So, yeah, it feels, I mean, it feels that way. I mean, you see these cases time and time again, and, and it's unveiled that they know how dangerous the product is and, and they keep pushing it, you know, and they, and they just use that for a legal slush fund to protect themselves. And it's very frustrating. Uh, well, I mean, what do you see as what's going to change that? It's a great question. I think number one, it's people fighting the good fight, right? On the legal side. But I, I think number two, it as consumers, we can't support companies who, who do stuff like that. Right. I, I think that's what really is going to make the biggest difference is, is as consumers, we, we have a lot of power, um, and numbers and we just can't support companies who have done stuff like that. I mean, that's great advice. And like you said, it's like, don't hold back from calling an attorney when a company has done you wrong. They, a lot of times they know more than they think and they're marketing to make you feel bad. Marketing is a powerful thing. I know that. So awesome. I mean, this, this is super interesting. Well, we have other stories that we want to share, but these were two great ones. If someone needs to get in touch with you, Mitch, if someone has been in an accident, uh, tell us a little about the process and how to get in touch with you. So I would say the easiest way would be just give us a call or, or go to our website. If you Google Chubb Law, we'll come up. Uh, thanks to Ian and, and his team, right? And, you know, our, our number is 407-777-4382. Call us or text us anytime and, you know, we'll take it from there. I, I wish I could say 
we helped you get to number one for Chubb Law, but it's you've got a great name. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mitch, thank you so much for being on True Law Stories. Uh, we'll make sure to put a link to the website in the show notes. Mitch is a great guy. You know, it's it's a free call uh, if if you're even thinking about this. But uh, Mitch, thanks again for being on True Law Stories. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you for taking Mitch and I on your journey. It's been Iron Garlic and True Law Stories. True Law Stories has been brought to you by VideoCaseStory.com. Testimonials stink. No one wants to watch a testimonial or read a case study. You need Video Case Stories for your business. Go to VideoCaseStory.com to learn more.